All right. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Now, let me, as you do, explain to you that we're actually not going to be teaching chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 of Revelation. If you're interested in that, you can go to my website and go to justpreacherministries.org, click on Bible Studies, and you'll see Revelation 2009. Back in 2009, I taught a Bible study on the book of Revelation, 32 hours on the book of Revelation, in great detail, starting in chapter 1 all the way through. In that, I did introduction, all that kind of stuff. But the reason why I'm not going to be doing chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapter 3 in this study is as I prayed about what God wanted me to teach next. Again, this all started from a Bible study that started about 10 years ago in this one couple's condo in, uh, in Indian Atlantic, Florida. It was actually a little bit further, longer than 10 years ago. Uh, I was still pastor at First Baptist Indian Atlantic, and I had been praying for years for a chance to get the Bible taught in some of those condos on the beach. You know how over on the beach side, all those condos are cropping up. And for years, people on the beach were saying, oh, our beautiful beach is being covered by all these condos. Well, as a pastor, I was pretty excited. Because if you talk to most pastors, when they look at their church area that they're trying to reach for the gospel, uh, they'll take a map of their area and they'll put a a, a tack where their church is. And they do the one-mile radius or a five-mile radius and all that. Well, if you do that in Indy Atlantic, you get water, all right? So I was excited to see these condos stacking up on the beach because now God was piling the people up for us to go reach with the good news. So this couple came from Indiana and they walked down after a service. They had just come to visit and they said, would you be interested in teaching? We want you to pray about teaching a Bible study in a condo over there uh, here in Indy Atlantic. And I said, I'll do it. They said, no, no, we really want you to pray about it. I said, I've been praying for two years. The answer is yes. And this Bible study over 10 years ago started in this couple's condo. And pretty soon there's so many people came we couldn't fit. So we moved to the rec room of that condominium complex. And it was a great venue. But after a while, we only had 12 parking spaces allowed. And we were breaking that every week. And so we moved from there to uh, Calvary Chapel Surfside using their sanctuary over there in the beach. And praise the Lord, we overflowed that. And then as we were praying about what to do next, we ended up at First Baptist Indy Atlantic in their fellowship hall. And so I have been teaching the Bible verse by verse through books of the Bible for over 10 years with a group of people on Tuesday nights. But then God showed us that instead of going to a bigger venue, why don't we add a night? And praise the Lord here, LifePoint has opened up free of charge for us to use their sanctuary on Wednesday nights. And it's just going to be an exciting time. But because of that, I already taught on Revelation in great detail But as we just finished the book of Colossians in our study and took a break for the month of August, as I was praying about what book to start next, God really was saying, you need to teach the book of Revelation. And I said, wait a minute, Lord, I've already taught Revelation in 32 hours, if you remember. But then he showed me that he wanted me to teach it from chapter 4 through 22. And as you're going to see tonight, John was told to write what he saw, what is, and what will take place after this. We're going to focus in this study on what's going to take place after the rapture of the church. And so chapters 4 through 22 will be covering all of that. And like I said, then God said, not only do I want you to teach chapters 4 through 22, I want you to teach it in chronological order. So we're not going to be covering chapters 2 and 3 in detail because that's the message to the churches during the church age. And folks, I believe without question that we are very close to the end of the church age. And because of that, we're going to be focused on what's going to take place after this. Now, I don't know a lot of your faces and a lot of you I don't recognize. And so I don't know where you are, what your level of understanding is, where you are in your theology or anything like that. 
And it's always a little bit hard for me as a Bible teacher. See, when I'm preaching in a church, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to preach my sermon. And, but when I want to teach the Word of God, my desire is to make sure that you are getting it. I'm not here to just present my material and move on. My desire is that you respond and are, are understanding what it is because I want to teach you what's going on. For those of you that don't know me, you need to understand something about how serious I take this responsibility. The Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 1, that not all of us should seek to be teachers because those of us who do will be held in higher accountability. I know one day I will stand before God and be judged. Well, it says in Matthew 12, 36, we'll be held accountable for every idle word. He's going to hold me accountable for what I say. So when I look at you and I teach you what I'm going to be teaching you from the scriptures about what is to come you may not agree with me, you may not see it the way I do, but please understand, my desire is to show you from the Word of God that I take it so seriously, I know that I will be standing before God because of what I'm saying in this class. And I can look you in the eye and tell you that I really believe, and we'll be laying that out through this study, that the rapture of the church happens prior to the tribulation period, and we're going to lay that all out. And then there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ and we're going to lay all that stuff out. But please understand, my desire is to teach you what the word of God says, not theory. We're not going to waste time with newspaper articles. We're going to be looking at what the word of God says. All right. Now, in order to start in chapter four, though, we have to start in chapter one and lay a foundation. Look closely at what it says. Revelation chapter one, verses one through three. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, again, if you want great detail on an introduction of the book of Revelation, go to my website for that and look on Revelation 2009. But John wrote this book while imprisoned under Domitian's rule in A.D. 96. He's imprisoned on an isle of Patmos, and while he was thought to be just put there where he wouldn't be any more trouble, Jesus shows up and visits him there on that island. And look closely. Who wrote the, the, the book of Revelation? That was a question, by the way. It's a trick question. Jesus wrote it. John just wrote down what he said. Look closely. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who said, well, if, if you know, we always say Paul wrote this book and Paul wrote that book, right? But did Paul actually write those books? No, Paul actually wrote those books, but other people were writing them down for him. He was the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was the one in telling his amanuenses or the scribes, if you will, who were writing down his books what to write. That's why in a lot of his books, he said, see, I do my greeting in my own hand. At the end, he would do a final greeting in his own hand. So Paul would write the book under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, but someone else actually penned it. In the same way, this book of Revelation might have been penned by John, but it says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he was to write down what Jesus told him to write down. Later on in our study, you're going to see that he sees some stuff, starts to write it down, and he's told, you can't write down what you just saw. So this is only him writing what he was told to write down. And so who wrote the book of Revelation? Jesus. Jesus. It's very important that we understand that. Jesus wrote this book. Now, 
Jesus' purpose in revealing these things to John was to show, look closely what it says, his servants, and I'm going to show you through this study, that means both the church and the tribulation saints, the things that must soon take place. So he had been given instruction to write these things down so that Jesus' servants would know the things that are to take place. But we get caught up on that word soon, and we miss the word right in front of soon. What's the word right in front of soon? Must. Must. Now, we're going to come back to the word soon, because for years people have wrestled with that word. They said, well, it's been almost 2,000 years since John wrote this. What does soon mean? Well, we'll come back to the word soon in a little bit. But I don't want us to skip the word must. You see, actually, most people, when you talk to people, even Christians, about the book of Revelation, they don't take it literally. They say it's symbolic. It's apocalyptic literature. It just pretty much says we win in the end. But just you don't take it literally. Folks, listen to me. I'm going to show you as we go through this study in the weeks to come that if you take it literally... It will make sense. And who wrote this book? Jesus did. And he said that these things, what? Must take place. Well, actually, he doesn't say it just one time. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Look at verse 1. After this, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what? What? Must take take place after this. If Jesus said these things must take place, this stuff's going to happen. Oh, let me show you one more. Go to Revelation 22. Look at verse 6. Revelation 22, verse 6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, I am going to tell you that the Bible does use symbolic language a lot. But I've come over my years of study to realize that when the Bible uses symbolic language, it then explains what it symbolizes. I'm going to give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Go to Revelation chapter 1 and look at verses 12 through 16 and then verse 20. In Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool and like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Jump to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, there were symbolic things that were there, but then the scripture explained what they symbolized. The the stars represented what? The angels or the messengers to the churches. And the lampstands represented what? The churches. Uh, let me give you a couple of other examples from the scriptures to help you see what I, I want you to see here. Um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? Remember when they were in the wilderness and they were thirsty and God had water come from the rock? What did the rock represent? Well, the scripture tells us it represents Jesus. Actually, in John chapter 7, you can write it down and look at it later on. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, Jesus stands up at a feast and he says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of him will flow rivers of living water. Then the scripture goes on and clarifies and says, By this he meant the Holy Spirit, which those who were to believe in him were later to receive. So it was symbolic about rivers of living water. It's not literal rivers of living water coming out of us, unless it's 90 out and sweaty. I actually got a chance to play a little golf with my son today. He's on the golf team with the homeschool team and to help him keep getting a little bit better because I want him to be as good as me, which will never happen. But uh, um, we actually played today from 12 noon until 2.50. Walked 18 holes in the heat today. I had rivers of living water, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that right now. But the rivers of living water, the symbolic language, represented... The Holy Spirit. How do we know this? The scripture tells us what it represents. Do you understand what I'm saying? All the way through. Let me just chase a rabbit real quick. When I teach preachers, I always tell them, look, don't chase rabbits while you're preaching. Unless you can catch it. And if you can catch it, it tastes good. Well, here's a rabbit that we can catch and it tastes awesome. Do you remember back in the wilderness, as we just referenced, when the nation of Israel was thirsty and God had Moses strike the rock? Remember, who's, who's the rock? Christ. And what's the water? It's the Holy Spirit or salvation. But then later on, they're thirsty again. And this time, God tells Moses to do what to the rock? To speak to it. Now, of course, Moses does like we do and tries to duplicate how God did it last time. God in his mercy provided water, but we've, we've missed the picture there. God was trying to paint a picture there. Because remember, symbolic language is pointing to things. If the rock is Christ and the water is the Holy Spirit and salvation, what God was wanting to show us in that picture was, in order for salvation to be given, in order for the Holy Spirit to be received, the rock, who is Christ, had to be struck. And he was on the cross, wasn't he? But how many times does he have to be struck? He was crucified once for all. Oh, you want salvation? What do you have to do now? Just speak to the rock. Isn't that cool? Jesus even said himself, how much more will the Holy, Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's already been struck. All you have to do is speak. So does the Bible use symbolic language? Yes. Uh, you can double check me and we're going to definitely come back to this passage later on in the study. But in Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, you see that Zechariah is shown this woman in a basket. And he says, what is this? And he's explained to him. He says, the basket is the iniquity in all the land, and the woman is wickedness. Again, every time the Bible uses symbolic language, it then explains what it symbolizes. Therefore, if the Bible seems to be using symbolic language, but it doesn't tell you that it symbolizes something, what should we do? Take it literally. For years, when I first started studying prophecy, I've been preaching for over 30 years, and I've been studying prophecy intensely for 20. 
But when I first started studying and I got to chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation and I started seeing the future destruction of Babylon, my brain started going, well, what is Babylon? Maybe it's America. Maybe it's the Roman Catholic Church. Guess what Babylon is, folks? Babylon. It's Babylon. And I can't wait to show you. When we get there, unless Jesus gets us before then, because it may be a while, I can't wait to show you Babylon's Babylon. And there's prophecies that are going to show that and lay it all out. Now, we need to take it literally. We understand that there is symbolic language, but it explains it. If it doesn't say it's symbolic, take it literally. And let me also ask you this question. Um, how many of the Old Testament prophecies that have, we know have already been fulfilled were fulfilled literally? All of them. Said he'd ride on a donkey. What did he do? He rode in on a donkey. I could just go on and on. Was he born in Bethlehem? Sure was. Then what made us all of a sudden start thinking that these future prophecies were just symbolic? When the Bible talks about a kingdom on the earth, and as we're going to find out, a thousand years in length, how come we're all of a sudden saying, well, it doesn't really mean that? It just is, folks, if all the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled, that we know have been fulfilled, were fulfilled literally, why did he stop? He didn't. And I promise you, if you're willing to stick with it, and let me walk you through the book of Revelation, and what's going to happen after the rapture of the church, and what's going to happen on the earth, and I show you not only from the book of Revelation, I also have another desire. I want you to realize that the book of Revelation actually just compiles the prophecies all throughout the whole Bible. A lot of people think that the book of Revelation was just written at the end. Mm -mm. Actually, over three quarters of the book of Revelation already had been written in the rest of the Bible. All Revelation does is compile it. Were there a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New about the coming kingdom on the earth? That was an easy question, by the way. Yeah. Revelation just lets us know, we find out in chapter 20, that it's a thousand years long. And so what we're going to be doing as I teach you this book is we're going to be going back. We're going to be using the whole Bible to teach the book of Revelation. I might not be really teaching you the book of Revelation in this study. I'm just going to teach you the Bible using the book of Revelation. And so, folks, I can't wait to get into it. But I have to deal with one more thing before we launch. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We're going to come back to that word soon and deal with near. But I also want to say one more thing. It's amazing to me how many Christians avoid the book of Revelation because they say it's confusing. There's a lot of debate and speculation, all this stuff. And so most Christians just avoid the book of Revelation. Not only that, as I travel around the country and have for the last 10 years dealing with churches and stuff, you'd be amazed how many pastors won't teach on the book of Revelation. Because they say, well, it causes a lot of con conflict and there's too many people arguing over how to interpret it and blah, blah, blah. It's the only book that says you're blessed if you read it and study it. Blessed are those who do what I'm doing and read it to you aloud. And blessed are those of you who hear it, but also keep what is written in it. How many of you, if I got it started, could finish Psalm 119, verse 11? I'll even start it in the King James for some of your older folks. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I what? Might not sin against thee. In other words, God, I take your word and I read it. 
I may not even fully understand it, but I read it and I believe it and I put it here and your spirit will then give me understanding and use it to teach me and to guide me. Your word I treasure. I keep it in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Blessed are those who read aloud the word of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and just like you treasure his word to keep you from sin, treasure what this book says. Because as things continue to go on between now and when Jesus gets us, because I don't know when that's going to happen, but I know that we're to be expecting it at any moment. A lot of people say, well, people expected the rapture to happen all the time in the church age. All the through the church, people thought it was going to happen in their time. I say, good. They're supposed to. Paul did too. Did you ever catch that? Did you ever think what Paul said when he talked about the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we all are going to be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Why is he saying we? Because he thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. He had taught it that way so much. That's why the Thessalonian church kept thinking that those people that were dying were going to miss it. Here's what I want you to understand. Take it literally. Understand that the book of Revelation is actually a compilation of all the prophecies from the Old Testament and New, and we're going to cover most of them. And we're going to take a look at what it has to say. And I'm going to tell you, don't avoid it. But just say, Lord, put it in my heart. And I promise you, as we go further along, and those of you that have been studying prophecy, like I have over the years, how many of you noticed that uh, Putin was uh, uh, putting his army in Syria big time? Did anybody catch that today? If you know anything about what the scripture says is going to happen in the last days, you went, hmm, that's interesting because the prophecies talk about that happening one day. Again, that doesn't mean that this is the fulfillment of it, but what does it do? It helps you understand what's going on in this world. You won't be freaked out like the rest of men who have no hope, but you will because you understand what Jesus said is going to happen. You'll be ready and think everything's right on schedule. Yes, ma'am. Yes. You, let me back up. You actually have made a statement that's wrong. There's nothing that has to take place before the rapture. There are things that have to take place before the second coming of Jesus when he steps foot on the earth. But there's nothing that has to take place before the rapture. You see, that's the difference. There's a lot of stuff that's still going to have to take place. And we're going to be studying it before the return of Jesus to the earth. But before he comes and gathers his bride, the mystery that hadn't been revealed in previous generations, the rapture, that could be at any time. A lot of people don't realize that Jesus actually talked about the rapture in John 14. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Listen closely. In my father's house are many rooms. What's the context he's talking? His father's house. He says, and... I go and prepare a place for you. Now, let me just clarify. Some of you have been taught over the years that Jesus is up there with a hammer and a saw, getting your room ready. I've even heard people say, it took him six days to make the universe, but he's been working on my place for 2,000 years. It's going to be awesome. No, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, listen to what he said. In my Father's house are many rooms. They already exist. I go to prepare a place for you. He prepared it 
by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. When he ascended to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't say, sorry, God, I can't sit down just yet. i got to get some spackle. <laughs> He's already prepared your place by dying on the cross for your sins. But listen to what he said. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, I will what? Come back and take you to be with me where I am. That's the rapture, folks. When he comes in the second coming, he's not taking us back to be with the Father. He's going to come at the second coming and set up his kingdom on this earth. The rapture actually happens before. Again, we'll lay it all out. By the end of this study, you might, even if you're not, you might be one of those pre-tribbers. All right, so look at verse 19. John is told to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, which is his vision of Jesus on the, earth, on the island there. No, I'm in Revelation 1. Sorry, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Thank you for making sure we're clear because a lot of times I'm not clear. I know what I'm thinking in my head. You guys have to just read my mind. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, which, like I say, is the vision of what he saw Jesus on the earth there on island Patmos. The things that are, which is the church age, chapters 2 and 3, and those that are to take place after this. Now, I want to deal with the word soon and the word near. This is, these things must soon take place. And again, that word soon's freaked a lot of people out because they say, well, it's been almost 2,000 years. What's your definition of, definition of soon? Well, the word in the Greek is entaxe. If you don't mind writing it down, you like notes, you want to double check, Jim, go ahead and do it. Please double check everything I say. But in the Greek, it's E-N space T-A-X-E-I-I, entaxe. It's where we get our, our word tachometer. How many of you guys are car guys? Any car guys in here? All right, Chris, you, you, I know you are. Uh, does a tachometer measure how long between events, or does it measure how fast things are actually happening? It's how fast. It's not a measurement of time. It's a measurement of how quickly things are happening. This word translated soon should be and could be translated speedily or quickly. In other words, these things must quickly take place. In other words, once this begins, folks, it's going to be mind-blowing how fast all this stuff takes place. And once we start getting into the opening of the seals, and you start to see all that's going to happen in that seven-year period to prepare things for the return of Jesus Christ, you're going to be going, I can't believe anybody would make, the world's going to be crazy during that time. That's because when these things begin to take place, it's going to happen quickly, speedily. That word soon did not mean from the time it was written, it'll be quickly in the sense of measuring of time. It's quickly that it happens when it happens. Remember the prophecy that Samuel was given to give Eli? Remember when he said, speak, Lord, your servant hears, and then God says, here's what I want you to do. Go tell Eli because of his wickedness and his son's wickedness. Uh, he and his sons are going to be all killed. It didn't happen right away, did it? But when it happened, it all happened on the same day. When it happened, it happened quickly. Now they say, okay, Jim, I might stick with you there and say that intax A doesn't mean measurement of time and it's just quickly going to happen. But what do you do with the time is near? Well, in order for me to explain to you the time is near, I've got to talk to you about dispensations. Now, whenever I use the word dispensation, some people go, oh, you're one of those dispensationalists. I can prove you are too. How many of you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament? Show of hands. Dispensationalists. 
See, a dispensation is just simply that God works a certain way in a certain time, and in a different time period, He works a different way. Please hear me. Salvation has always been in every dispensation by faith in what God has said and His provision for your sin. Ever since the beginning of the need for that, the salvation has always been by faith in what God has said and His provision for your sin. But at different times, God has worked in different ways for His purposes. And there are dispensations or different time periods. Let me give you an example. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through who? His son. In other words, see what he said? In the past, God worked this way. He spoke through the prophets. But now, in this time period, he's speaking through his son. Oh, by the way, did anybody catch that the time period was called in which his son is speaking? The last days. Let me show you another one real quick. Go to 1 Peter. Actually, we're in Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 9, and then we'll go to 1 Peter. Go to Hebrews 9, look at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it, as it is, he has appeared once for all, when? At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me give you one more. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 20 and 21. First Peter 1 verses 20 and 21. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in what? These last times for the sake of you. Now, folks, for those of you that are sitting there saying, Jim, <laughs> You're one of those people who think we're in the last days. The Bible says we've been in the last days since Jesus was on the earth. The last days began when Jesus came in the flesh. So what I want to do is just give you a very, very basic overview of dispensations. And I'm going to give you some scriptures to kind of prove and to illustrate what I'm talking about. So the first dispensation or the time period and the way in which God worked according to the scriptures is the garden. All right. In the garden, everything was perfect and wonderful. Did things stay that way? No, because of sin, Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and the new dispensation began. From the time of Adam and Eve's sin until the law of Moses, the Bible says, was a dispensation. A time period, if you want to write it down, it's a time of conscience. Actually, and you're going to, I'm going to show it to you. I want you to see this and turn, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I want to see that the Bible talks about that time period. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For indeed, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, which remember, the law wasn't given until the time of Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, he said that during that time period, how do we know that there was still sin on the earth between Adam and the law given? How do we know there was still sin? People died. 
The soul that sins, it shall die. Now, did people die because they broke a command of God? No. Adam broke a command of God by eating from the tree he wasn't supposed to. But from that time period from Adam until the law, people still died because they still sinned. As you know from Romans chapter 2, Paul said not only in chapter 1 that he's revealed, God's revealed himself to everyone through all creation. His divine nature has been clearly seen through what's been made. But then he goes on in chapter 2 and says, And even those who haven't heard the law of God, God wrote a law on their hearts, which is their what? Their consciences. Let me ask you an easy question. All of you have a sense of right and wrong. Now, we may not agree on what we think is right and wrong, but all of us have a sense of right and wrong, right? Have you ever gone against what you thought was right or wrong? God's shown you you're a lawbreaker, even though you've never heard the law. And so from the time of Adam until the law was a dispensation. God worked in that way. But then the law came. What was the purpose of the law? I heard schoolmaster to do what? What was the purpose of the law? Convict is part of it, but it's to show us we got sin. Remember, we just read sin's not counted when there is no law. In other words, we're not even really conscious of it at times. If you got cancer and you don't know it, but then you have an MRI, does the MRI give you cancer? What does the MRI do? It reveals whether or not you have claustrophobia. You're right. <laughs> no, actually, the MRI, its purpose is to show you the cancer that's there. It didn't give you cancer. It magnified it and brought it to light. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 20. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the what? The knowledge of sin. The whole purpose of the law was to just show people they had sin. God was using consciences to convict during that time. And there were people during that time period that were given righteousness because of their faith in God's word and his provision for their sin. And every one of them was without excuse because he revealed to their consciences that there was right and wrong and they were going against it. But then God comes and he gives us the law, the next dispensation. First one, you got the garden. Then you got the age of conscience, but Adam to the law. Then the time of Moses, the law comes. And its purpose is to just reveal sin. By the way, does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? How many of you think less? How many of you think more? The mores have it. You can write it down and double check me. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass would increase. Why would God want lost people to sin more? So they'll realize they got a problem. If you talk to most people today that don't know the Lord, if you ask them if they die, would they go to heaven? They say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm all right. Doesn't it say in James chapter 2, verse 10, that if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all? Then we got a problem. And God said, I sent the law and said, go give it your best shot. Because in doing so, you're going to realize you can't keep the law. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there's dispensation one, or there's garden. Dispensation 2, the age of conscience between Adam and the law. 
People still died. There was still sin. And then the law came. And at the end of that time period started a new dispensation when Jesus came to the earth. We know it now as the age of grace, the church age. Now, we're going to get into this in more detail later on, but God's purpose in saving us Gentiles during this church age is to make Israel jealous because he's not done with Israel. You're going to find God is far not done with Israel. And actually, what's to come next after this will make a whole lot more sense to you if you stop trying to read the church into all the end time prophecies because it ain't for us. It's about Israel. We have been grafted in by his grace Oh, I got to tell you something cool. This past weekend, I was up in, sorry, past week, I was up in New Hampshire preaching at a Christian conference center. And it was a real tough assignment because I, all I do is get to preach and then during the day swim in the lake. And I don't have, there's no gators in those ponds. And that's really cool. It's so much fun to be in a freshwater pond and not be doing this. It was awesome. And, and I got to play golf. And at night I'm preaching. And so during the day, I was heading, how many of you know where Lake Winnipesaukee is? Anybody know where Lake Winnipesaukee is? You do, because you guys were actually there. This couple actually were up there, and we, I saw them while I was teaching up in New Hampshire. I got to fly back. They drove back, so they look a little tired. You'll know why. So one day, as I'm heading to the lake to go swim, this Christian conference center has their own private beach called Back Bay. But there's also this big lake just across the road where they got this dock and you can just it's so deep you can't touch bottom. And personally, I wanted to go to the big part of the lake, but I'm trying to live my life the way I teach people to walk and listen to the spirit as you go. And I felt like God told me to go to Little Beach. And I'm like, all right. So I go to the Little Beach. I take off my sandals and I take off my shirt. So I is impressed with my six pack and. Uh, <laughs> As I'm heading to the water, I hear this voice from people out in the water a ways talking, and they said, he lives over by Cape Canaveral. Well, I'm in New Hampshire, and I'm thinking, Cape Canaveral? I live out of Cape Canaveral. So I walk out to where these people are, and I said, I, I heard Cape Canaveral. They said, we were just talking about you. I said, fill me in. Come to find out there was a lady there who was visiting. She wasn't a Christian, but she was friends of people that were at the conference center. She was Jewish. And she's curious. And she had come to one of the sessions that I had taught the night before. And as she put it, I was mesmerized. And I said, if you're Jewish, I got some good news for you. God's got a plan for the nation of Israel, and he's not done. And actually, this time period where this church thing's going on, where Christians are coming to faith in Jesus and they're not Jewish, but they're believing in the same God you believe in. You know, the Bible actually says that God's using us just to make you Jews jealous. Oh, folks, what just happened next, I wanted to shout. This lady goes, I am jealous. Amen. Oh, to hear a Jew say I'm jealous, I started looking like, okay, Lord, blow the trumpet. I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> now pray for her. Her name is Diane. She wanted some scriptures from the Old Testament that talked more about Jesus. And I just, Lord gave me something to give to her. She came that night to the next session that I was teaching, ran up to me with her notepad and said, give them to me again. So pray that Diane comes to faith. The spirit of God's drawing her. But she's trying to think, figure it out instead of take the last step by faith. But how did the Bible describe this time period that began when Jesus came to the earth? This time of grace? The last days. Why? You know what happens next? And you're going to see it as we get into the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord. 
See, we hear the day of the Lord and we think of the second coming. I'm going to show you from Scripture. The day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation period. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be the millennial kingdom. And after that, the new heaven and the new earth. And so why does the Bible say the time is near? It's because everything we're going to be reading about is what happens in the next dispensation. There are no other dispensations between now and when all this stuff in Revelation 4 and following happen. That's next. There's going to be a rapture of the church. And at some time after that, let me hear, I want you to hear me clearly. A lot of us that grew up watching a study in prophecy, we looked at the prophecy charts, and they always have rapture and the tribulation beginning right away. The rapture does not start the tribulation. What starts the tribulation is the confirming of the covenant between the Antichrist and the many. There could be a time period. The rapture could occur today, and it could be 50 years before the tribulation period really begins. What I want you to understand is this. What we're going to be studying is what's going to happen next. And as you look at what the Scripture says, and all the pieces that are going to be put in place according to the prophecies from the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and what Jesus had to say, you're going to be watching the news, and all of a sudden you're going to be going, wow, wow, wow. All of those places, all of those pieces are getting put into place. For any of you that have studied prophecy at all, you know that the Bible said very, very clearly that in the last days Turkey was going to be one of the enemies. Turkey's been an ally with Israel until about three, four years ago, and all of a sudden, it flipped. The Bible's been saying that for years. A lot is going on right now, folks, and it's picking up speed. Jesus himself wrote us a book to show us what's going to soon, quickly take place when it happens, and it's next. Well, one last question, and then we'll get into chapter 4. Why then... Does God want us to know about it? Why does God want us to know about it if we're not going to be here? To tell others. Don't you know the Bible said that the Old Testament prophets searched intently, trying to find out the times and the seasons that the Spirit of God was prophesying through them, and they were just told, it's not for you, but it's for other generations. Aren't you glad they told? Aren't you glad they wrote it down? Aren't you glad they passed it on? We're not going to be here when this stuff happens from chapter 4 on, but we need to know so that we can tell people to caution them and give them a chance to respond so they won't be here, but also so that they would have a chance to come to faith because we've told them, and then all of a sudden, those wackos were right. So it's valuable for us. So turn to Revelation chapter 4. By the way, for those of you that are new to the Bible study format, some of you are here from the Tuesday study, and I love you, and I see you all sitting around. It's awesome. You know. But those of you that are new, typically we don't cover many more than two or three verses each week just because there's so much here, and I want to let the whole of Scripture teach it. We ain't going to be running through this. We're going to be just pulling out the depth and the meat. And if we don't finish before Jesus comes and gets us, I don't think anybody here has a problem. I don't either. I don't either. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Nah, hate to do this to you, but I have to. 
I want to hammer the word must one more time. I'm going to quote to you some Bible verses, and I'll get them started. I know you can finish them. In John chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus told Nicodemus, you what? Must be born again. Did must mean must? Sure does. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. Does must mean must? In Matthew 26, verses 47 through 54, in that section, Jesus is in the garden and they're coming to arrest him and Peter starts swinging his sword and Jesus says, put it away. The scripture must be fulfilled. So folks, when Revelation 4, verses 1 and following, Jesus says, come up here and I'm going to show you what must take place after this. Is this symbolic? Or is all this stuff we're about to read really going to happen? It's really going to happen. And I'm telling you, when you start taking it literally, it'll make so much more sense and it'll come alive. At once, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with the golden crowns on their heads. We will be dealing with this in great detail next week because I'm going to show you next week clearly from many scriptures that the 24 elders are the church. I can prove it to you from scripture that these 24 elders actually is evidence that the rapture has already occurred prior to what's going to take place next. People have taken chapter 4 as the rapture. No, the rapture's already occurred by chapter 4 because the church is already seated around the throne with Jesus. You say, Jim, how do you know it's the church? Come back next week. But let me also, for those of you that love to do a little extra study, I want you to write down Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 and following. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and following. And you're going to take a look and you're going to see that even though Paul had been taken into heaven, he wasn't allowed to write about what he saw. But Isaiah and Isaiah 6 had been taken into the throne room of God and seen the same thing that John sees when he's taken up into the presence of God. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel had been taken into the presence of God. And oh, by the way, you're going to notice that when they describe what they see, it's almost identical. They've all seen the presence of God. But none of them talk about these thrones around the throne until John's there now. And there they are. It's the church. Again, can't wait to show you everything in me wants to tell you right now, but I can't. Because it's too much. And I don't want to stop in the middle of it. I want to lay it all out for you. So I said, Lord, I know we're going to have just a few more minutes left. What do I do? And he said, take him to Revelation chapter 3. You see, folks, if we are at the end of the church age, which I really believe we are, for a lot of scriptural evidence and scriptural reasons that will become clear in time, then we need to know what Jesus said to the church in the last days of the church age. The messages to the seven churches were seven literal churches that existed at time, but in different time periods, but at the same time, each of the messages to the church, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and so on, at the end he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
Even though there was a specific message to those people in Ephesus, it was also to the church. Even though there was a specific message to the church in Pergamum, it was also to the church as all of us. And even though this message in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, was written to the church in Laodicea, and it was specifically to them, it is also to those of us at the end of the church age. And you need to hear what it says. Like I said, I don't, I don't know everybody here. And I don't know where you stand. And I would be remiss if I didn't just tell you what Jesus said to those people in the church in the last days. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel, the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. We say, why would God want me cold? Because if you're cold, you know you're cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, let me just stop. Jesus said in John chapter 6 that he will lose none that the Father has given him. Did you hear what I'm saying? Jesus, people, I, the Bible teaches without question that if you've truly been saved and he's given you his spirit, you are sealed. You can't lose that salvation. You can't even walk out of it. And the best example, even though I could give you tens of verses and 20 verses that deal with this, the best one is that Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. That's why Paul in Philippians 1.6 could say, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you will finish it. Well, how do you know? Because what God starts, he finishes. But if Jesus is writing to the church, and I put it in quotes, in the last days, and he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, they were never his. Doesn't the Bible say that in the parable of the soils that some seed will fall in the rocky soil, spring up, sure, fool everybody, look like salvation. But when trouble comes, they go away because they weren't really saved. And the seed's going to fall in the thorny soil, spring up, sure, look like salvation. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth is going to choke it. They're going to have, because they have no root, they're going, to, they're going to be those among us who look like they're one of us. But only God knows who really is and who isn't. And Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Listen closely. That's going to happen at the rapture, folks, when those who are his are taken to be with him where he is. And those who really aren't will be left here. Now, listen closely. I'm not one of these preachers that tries to add to my stats by scaring people and getting them rebaptized, even though they're already saved. I want you to hear me closely. I'm not trying to make you wonder if you're saved. That's what Satan does. And those of you that have walked with the Lord for a while, you know full well Satan has come at you at some time in your life to make you question whether or not you're really saved. I went through it myself. It's worth two years of my life. Until I put the helmet of salvation on and he's not able to mess with me anymore in that area. I'm not talking about making you wonder if you're saved. There's a huge difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. The Spirit of God, if he's speaking to you and showing you you're not his... Please, please, please get it right so that you're not spit out when he gathers his church. Let me keep reading and you'll see how clear it becomes. 
So because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. By the way, all descriptions of the lost all throughout the Bible. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. How many of you remember that old painting of Jesus in the garden standing at that garden door? knocking, and how there was no handle on the outside. It only could be opened from the inside. And haven't many of us have heard the preacher say to the lost, Jesus is at the door. But how many of you have ever put it in this context? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock to who? The church. Folks, it's one of the saddest things I have to deal with as I travel around and meet with churches and some places I go and meet their leadership for the first time. And a lot of times I'll just as I meet with, with, with elder bodies or with the board of directors of churches and different groups of leadership. A lot of times I will just walk into a group and I'll say, you know what, I've never met you before and I'm here to teach you the word of God. But if as a substitute teacher, you always say, hey, am I going to teach in fifth graders, third graders, you know, so you compare your lesson. I need to know where you all are. Tell me how you came to know Christ. And you would be amazed at how many people's answer to that is, well, I've been a member of this church since. It'll blow your mind how many people think that's what it means to be a part of the church. I joined this church in. And if Jesus said that most in the church in the last days won't be his. We need to realize that that's the case. Now, it's not our job to figure out who's saved and who's not. I could sit here and go, hmm, not too sure about that Hicks guy. But um, I can say that because I know and he knows and he and I are tight. But let me just tell you that don't get, don't get into thinking that it's your job to figure out who. The Bible says that's up to God. He's going to separate the, the sheep and the goats. Actually, actually I'm going to clarify. Sheep and the goats has actually happened at the end of the tribulation period. I'm going to show you that that has nothing to do with the church. Can't wait to show you that. But he's going to separate the wheat from the tear. When it's time, it's not our job to figure it out. I just share this with you for this reason. If the Spirit of God is telling you you're not where you belong, God's been merciful. He's been patient. Aren't you glad he hasn't raptured the church yet? <laughs> oh, look at the next verse. Look at verse 21 and 22. The one who conquers, and we only conquer by faith, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me where? Did you catch that? The one who conquers, I'm going to grant you to sit with me on my throne. That's your little glimpse of where we're going next week. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, next week we'll start breaking down chapter 4. And maybe if Lord wills, we might even get into a little bit of chapter 5. And lay the foundation. But please don't think, well, he's going to be in this chapter next. No, we're going to jump all around. And I'm going to teach the book coming up in the order that it's going to be happening. Yes, sir. Uh, on the book that you have, uh, first chapter of the just has finished teaching that book. So we, I might be able to get it. Or some people pray that we just went through that. If you don't have the $15, go see him. Go see him. But at the same time, folks, thanks so much for coming. This is going to be a lot of fun. The hard part for me is going to be waiting until next Tuesday and Wednesday. God's got, God's got that too.
Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next week.